Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, good morning. To to begin our time this morning in preparation for the book of Zephaniah, I just want to ask you a question and invite you to take a minute or two just to turn to one or two people around you and answer it. Why is it difficult for us to embrace seemingly opposite attributes of God, such as judgment and love? So, for instance, we say the Bible teaches that God is a God of judgment, and we teach that God is a God of love. And those seem to be opposite to us when we first hear them, judgment and love. Why is that a difficult concept for us to embrace both of those? Take a minute or two and talk about that with somebody near you. All right. Um, I'm sure there were many interesting comments made there. We we usually conceive of judgment and love as being very different from each other. We conceive them as hard to reconcile. We often, as humans, can conceive of them of being an either or. In any instance, someone is either judgmental or loving. But today, we're going to find out from Scripture that it doesn't have to be an either-or. It can be a both-and, and in fact, the biblical view of God is a both-and. God is both a judge and he is loving. So let's set the stage here. About 700 years before Christ, a prophet named Zephaniah spoke to the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah, about the day of the Lord. He used that term over and over, the day of the Lord. And here's the map. Israel is the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. It's, it's all was Israel at one point, and then they divided and the northern tribes kept the name Israel. The southern two tribes kept the name Judah. And Zephaniah is prophesying to the southern kingdom because by this time, by the time he appears on the scene, the, the, the ten northern tribes, uh, had already been dispersed by Assyria. And so he's speaking to the two southern tribes. He talked a lot about the day of the Lord. Uh, there is a, a chart on your outline that we're going to walk through. There's a lot of details here, but as we walk through it this morning, hopefully this will help you understand what he was writing about and what he was talking about and also about how it relates to us today. So you start, you see what's highlighted in blue, Zephaniah there between 640 and 609 B.C., before Christ, about 700 years before Christ um, lived. 
And one of the major concerns of the book of Zephaniah is how should we respond to a God who judges? And how should we respond to a God who loves? Zephaniah is one of the so-called minor prophets. We're going through all 12 of them, one uh, one per week, and this is the ninth of the 12. And let's watch this today carefully. How do we respond to a God who judges and loves? So the first, the first answer is this, because God will judge thoroughly on the day of the Lord. The way to respond is to repent. Now, to repent means not to do penance. It means to change your mind to agree with God about your sin. So a person who repents, it's like their life is going in one direction, but they see now that it's not the right direction, and so they repent, they they turn, they change in their minds and before God and confess it, and they, with God's help, make the turn in direction. Zephaniah opens with one of the most dramatic statements in the entire Bible. This is God speaking. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah And against all who live in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. The very names of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Now the people of Judah professed allegiance to the Lord. They said, we honor God. And while they said that, they also bowed down to the sun and the moon and the stars like the heathen nations around them. And they swore allegiance to the Ammonite god, Molech. Now, what was the problem with that? Why can't you have more gods than one? Have as many gods as you want. That's what the people of that day thought. Well, Molech was tragic. Baal and Molech required child sacrifice. And they had male and female prostitutes that connected worship with orgies. As Jim Height says, worshiping God and something else is not worshiping God at all. Verse 6, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Now, did they believe in the Lord? Supposedly. Did they pray or seek God? No. It's as if they were practical atheists. (laughs) They wouldn't have said, we're atheists. We don't believe in a God or any gods. They they said we believed in the Lord, but in essence, the way they practiced, it was like they were atheists. They were marginalizing God. Verse 12 
cause them complacent. And you know, when people, whenever people turn away from God, they also mistreat others. And so they were oppressing each other. And as a result, verse 14 warns them about the day of judgment. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. That day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end to all who live on the earth. Now, Zephaniah prophesied during the tying of a king named Josiah, who actually became king when he was eight years old. And so it took Josiah. Josiah was a good king. The kings before him had wreaked havoc morally on the nation. But Josiah was a good king, and he brought in some reforms, although it took some years for those reforms to take place. And when Zephaniah is prophesying, either those reforms had not yet taken place or they had just begun. And so Zephaniah makes this prophetic statement or these prophetic statements. Now let's think about how this came true. He's saying to Judah, there's going to be a day of the Lord and everything and everybody is going to be destroyed. Just a few years later, after Zephaniah made this prophecy, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians invaded and attacked Jerusalem. And they took many people into exile. And so on the chart, this is the day of the Lord that Zephaniah has in mind. He has told them judgment is coming and he's, it's just a few years, if you look on the bottom on the dates, it's just a few years after he makes the, these prophecies. It happened in 586 B.C. And then they, after the Babylonians took people away, they returned and they destroyed Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They, they destroyed the temple. And that's the context and the flavor of this prophecy. But all... Is not lost. There is some hope as we get into chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, God gives a call to the people to avoid this. Look what he says in verse 1 Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation, before the decree takes effect. And that day passes like wind-blown chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So here's the message. God is going to bring justice. He is going to bring judgment because of all of the wickedness that was true in that culture. 
And yet he says to the humble of the land, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. You repent and maybe you can be sheltered. And then after this call for God's people to repent in chapter 2, the rest of the chapter, he points to the other nations that it's, will also uh, be subject to judgment. It's not just Judah. It's Philistia. It's Moab and Ammon. It's Cush and it's Assyria. And the capital of Assyria was Nineveh, which we've heard about in this series. The book of Jonah, he was called to go to Nineveh. Um, the book of Nahum brought up Nineveh. We keep seeing Nineveh there. Why did they need to repent? Why, what's the call for them to repent? Let's remind ourselves. We won't have time to dive into each one of these, but let me just remind you of the various things that were true in their culture and ask yourselves, are these true in our culture? Are these true in our lives? So there was idolatry, chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. They insulted and mocked God's people, 2.10. They were arrogant and proud in 2.15. They oppressed each other in chapter 3, verse 1. There was bad, corrupt leadership. And there was also among the people corruption rather than fearing God. So all of these nations, boom, 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 they're all going to be judged. And he comes to chapter 3, and now the focus comes back to God's own people. You see, God's people thought, oh yeah, all these sinful nations, yes, God, go judge them. But now it comes back to them. It comes back to Judah, and it personalizes it with its capital, Jerusalem. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Of Jerusalem, I thought, surely you will fear me and accept corruption. Then her place of refuge would not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. In other words, the prophet is saying this is what God's view is. He was surprised, quote unquote, by the fact that his own people, surely they will accept. But even, even God's own people, were full of corruption, and sin must be judged. Now, it's it's not easy to conceive of judgment. It's not a pleasant subject. It's not easy to talk about, right? And it that's why I started this to have to have you discuss with each other. Why? How is it hard? Why is it difficult for us to? To embrace both judgment and love. Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian from Croatia, once rejected the concept of God's wrath as barbaric. Like probably much of our society. Much of our society does not want to think of a God that would have anger or jealousy or judgment, right? I mean, 
That's barbaric. It's, it's not worthy of a God that loves. But then, if you remember 20 years or so ago, his country faced a terrible war. People were committing atrocities against each other, their neighbors, their countrymen. And in his book, Free of Charge, this is what he wrote. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. And I think that's an important point. God is not an amoral creature that just sits back and says, anything goes. However people want to treat each other is fine. No, the, the thing that we fear the most and, and cringe against, his wrath, his judgment, is a result of him being holy and pure and perfect in every respect, including love. And he cares about people and he cares about right and he will not allow wrong to rule forever. There's a period And we're in that period. We're in that period where there's a lot of wrong and a lot of evil. But it's not going to last forever. So how should we respond to this God who judges and loves? Well, first of all, because he will judge thoroughly, and that's what much of the book of Zephaniah is about, is how thorough his judgment will be. Our answer is to repent. Lord, You're giving me a chance to change my heart and mind and to turn to you. And if you feel that, if you sense that, if you want to go in God's direction, embrace it today. Embrace him today. Repent. Now, when we come to the rest of the book, it's just 11 verses or so, the last section of chapter 3. There's a different way to respond. We get a glimmer of hope because we start to learn that God has a remnant of people and that this judgment of his is twofold. It is not only a judgment to punish sin. It is a judgment to purify. God's judgment is designed to pour out his wrath for the sake of justice, but it also cleanses humanity. 
at some point in the future, God is going to return his purified people to Jerusalem so that they can serve him and rejoice in him. And so we get the the second point, because God restores his people and delights in them, rejoice. So the first way we respond is because of his judgment that's coming, we repent, but because he del- he's going to restore and because he delights in his people, we rejoice. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Then I will, and again, this is in the context of judgment. What will I do? I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. Because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of the of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. And historically, not too many years after this prophecy, this began to be fulfilled. Judah was indeed able to return. They were taken into exile. They were taken into captivity. 586 B.C., but some started returning because here you had the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonians took over them. But uh, then came the, uh, the, the Medes and the Persian empires and Cyrus united those two and they defeated the Babylonians. And Cyrus said to the Jewish people, you can go back. <laughs> you can go back. And in fact... Uh, They did. Let me put that on the chart there. You can see this day of the Lord that he's envisioning. Yes, there was the exile. They were going to go into exile, but they were going to come back. And I I put 516. They started coming back in 539, but 516 was when the the temple was rebuilt. So I'll I'll use that date there. You see, the day of the Lord has judgment in it, but it also has hope in it. It has restoration in it. It's God's people are going to be restored. And in fact, that's what they did. And yet, as Zephaniah is looking at the day of the Lord and he's looking at what's going to come at that time, which was future for him in the near future, he also has a long range view of the final day of the Lord that Peter talks about in the New Testament. Nothing like this has ever happened before and nothing like it will ever happen. Peter says, Second Peter chapter uh, 3, the day of the Lord, which is his return, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That final day is a day of judgment. But watch what happens as a result in verse 14. 
or verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God's final day of judgment can be scary and it should be. But it also can be encouraging because when God does that, he's going to make everything right. You and I have never, ever lived in any setting, in any culture, in any environment where everything was right. John Stott writes, we see the malice, cruelty, power and arrogance of the evil men who persecute. We see the sufferings of the people of God who are opposed, ridiculed, boycotted, harassed, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. In other words, we see injustice, the wicked flourishing, the righteous suffering. Why doesn't God do something, we complain? And the answer of Zephaniah and Peter and the steady witness of the Bible is, he will. He will. So one more look at that passage before we go back to Zephaniah. Uh, I, I put up verses 10 to 13, but notice the verses that lead right into them if, as far as seeing what God's heart for people is. In verse 8, um, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's what God wants. Um, Now, let's go back to Zephaniah. We're picking up this element now. That God's judgment is going to be terrible on the one hand, but it's going to bring new things and restoration and peace and, 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 and righteousness. And so he says, sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. So in other words, When that day comes, when you come back to Jerusalem after you've been taken into exile, you're going to be singing and you're going to be rejoicing. So it was a call to them to do that. But this is God's word and it's eternal and it's everlasting. And if you today are part of the people of God, if you're a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, this is also a call for you and me to sing today. It's a call for us to rejoice today. It's a call for us to realize that today God is our mighty warrior just like he was their mighty warrior. For them, it was an actual physical exile away from their nation. For us, it's a different kind of freedom and delivery. And so as he gives them these closing verses, let's just note there's some reasons today that we can rejoice. The first one is this. God is sufficient to take care of our enemy. 
God is sufficient to take care of our enemy. Look what he says in verse 15 to them. He said it to them, but also to us. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. Now, if you lived, if you were the people of God living in the seventh century BC, that would have been Assyria first, then Babylon. God was taking away their, their physical enemy. God was strong enough. That's why you should rejoice. What about us today? The people of God today also have an enemy. <laughs> I'm not I'm not talking about a person who belongs to a different political party. <laughs> I'm not talking about the person at the office that stabs you in the back. There is an enemy that you and I have today that we cannot overcome. And that enemy is sin. Now, it could be Satan. Satan, obviously, is very involved with sin. But sin is an enemy that has invaded the human race, beginning with Adam and Eve and passed down to all of us. And we cannot overcome it. And the wages of sin is what? Death. It's separation from God. We cannot overcome that enemy. But here's the good news of the gospel today. Jesus paid for our sin. He overcame our enemy. You see, this enemy is an enemy that's going to cause us to be separated from God forever. Unless somebody does something. And the only person who could do something about it was Jesus Christ. And he did. He paid for our price. Sin always must be paid for. If my, if I don't like my neighbor's fence, let's suppose my new neighbor builds a fence and I don't like where he built it or how he built it. Maybe I think it's on my property and I don't like it. And he goes out of town for a couple of weeks and I decide, you know what? I'm going to tear that fence down. If I do that, Somebody's going to have to pay for the fence, right? If I do wrong, I might, there's no like cheap forgiveness, like, oh, I'm sorry, I just was just a moment of anger. Will you forgive me for tearing your fence down? No, somebody's got to pay for that fence. When we sin against other human beings and when we sin against God, that sin has to be paid for. We sing that song often. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Second Corinthians. Notice this. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians 5. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin. That's Jesus. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love this so much to think about. In Zephaniah, it's great. God took away their punishment. That's great. That's amazing. They should rejoice. But now, God not only takes away our punishment, He takes our punishment on Himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so we could be forgiven.
That's a great reason (laughs) to rejoice. And so let's add the cross in there to finish that chart. That's how we fit into the picture. They rejoiced in 516 B.C., and there's going to be rejoice. There's going to be judgment and rejoicing in the final day of the Lord. But we don't have to wait to the final day of the Lord whenever that is. You notice there's a question mark. You're not going to, this is not a church that's going to give you the dates. Some people might try to give you the dates and the charts and all that. This is the closest chart. I know I can do this chart with confidence because all that has happened. <laughs> I don't know when that's going to happen, and nobody does. That's a great reason to rejoice. Here's another reason to rejoice. God is with us. Look at verse 15 again. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Do not fear, Zion. Fear paralyzed them. Fear paralyzes them, and and it it paralyzes us, too. Fear today can paralyze us. What is it that God offered to help them with their fear? And what is it that God helps us to offer with our fears? His presence. God is with you. When we know that God is with us, That helps our fears. And it's not just any God. It's the mighty God. It's the mighty warrior who saves. It's the strong God. He is the one that is with us. And then another reason to rejoice is because God takes great delight in us. The second half of verse 17. He will take great delight in you and his love. He will no longer rebuke you but will rejoice over you. With singing. The NIV translate that in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. Some translations render it appropriately, he will quiet you with his love. In the Hebrew language that the Old Testament was written in, there are different words for love. The most common word is hesed, which is the covenant love, the covenant love and kindness that God offers to those with whom he is in covenant. That's not the word that's used here. This is a different one. It's a word that conveys a sense of, a strong sense of affection. Other places it's used in in the Old Testament include the passionate love of Jacob for Rachel in Genesis 29. The, The fond love that Jacob had for his son Joseph in Genesis 37. Jonathan's deep friendship with David in 1 Samuel 18. The psalmist's delight in the law of the Lord in 119. And the love that God expressed for his people in Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. God delights. In his people. Are you a Christian today? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? God delights in you. God delights in you. I saw this. I I think I might have told this before, after it happened. It's just so impacting. Because some of my... You know, we lived nine years in Chicago and some of our dearest friends we met in Chicago and still they're life friends. And so a few years ago, we went to the wedding of, of, uh, one of, one of the boys that my boys grew up with. 
And so, you know, you have the, the wedding and then afterwards you got the reception and everything and it's time for the toast and, and, and my buddy Jeff is, um, going to say something to Josh, his son. And I've heard a lot of, you know, we've all heard toast and this and they've all been meaningful and everything, but, but this one really struck me. Jeff just looked at Josh and he said, he said, Josh, you've never disappointed me. I thought, man, that is delight. <laughs> Here's a dad delighting in his son. You have never disappointed me. I'm so proud of you. How does God feel about you today? I, I, I didn't ask, how do you feel about yourself? Or how does your angry neighbor feel about you? I didn't ask how does how did that coach or teacher or maybe parent that you could never please feel about you. I ask you how does God feel about you? Didn't ask you parents how do your children sometimes feel about you? How does God feel about you? This tells us he delights over you. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. Regardless of how good or successful or productive or kind you've been this week or this month or this year, God delights over you. Yes, he hates sin, but as his child, he delights over you. And that's why he fights for us as our warrior. First John says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Finally, one more reason to rejoice, and that is God frees us from shame. Verse 18, I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, says the Lord. I think today, by application, some people have a hard time rejoicing in God because of shame. It might be your sin, your addiction, your family problems, your life circumstances, whatever it is that has, that, that cripples you and keeps making you feel ashamed. And part of the gospel, part of the good news, is that when God said to you, I'm setting my affection on you, he is going to release us from shame. And when he was going to release these people in Zephaniah, all of these, this exile and this mistreatment caused them great shame. And he's like, I'm going to restore that to you. Paul said in Romans 8:34 through a question, who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Nobody is going to condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. So we started this morning with understanding that there's often this uh, difference seemingly between love and judge. And yet the biblical view, that, that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is that the judge loves. The judge loves. So here's God's word. Because God the judge delights in you, repent and rejoice. That's the way to put this message into practice. Repent and rejoice. Repent of sin, trust Christ as Savior, and rejoice. Rejoice in his love for you. Let me give you two brief quotes to close, and then we'll we have a couple people who are going to lead us in prayer. Trevin Wax says, I'm going fairly contemporary and a while back. Trevin Wax says the God who is truly scary is not the wrathful God of the Bible, but the God who closes his eyes to the evil of this world, shrugs his shoulders and ignores it in the name of love. What kind of love is this? A God who is never angered at sin and who lets evil go by unpunished is not worthy of worship. Well, we go back a few years ago, Charles Spurgeon said, believer, you are happy when God blesses you, but not as happy as God is. You're glad when you're pardoned, but he who pardons you is even more glad. The prodigal son come back to his home and was very happy to see his father, but not as delighted as his father was to see him. The father's heart was more full of joy Because his heart was larger than his son's. Because God the judge delights in you. Repent and rejoice. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.